Right now on Matter of Fact, are your leftovers hurting the environment? How does composting relate to climate change? Like, connect those dots for me. Soledad heads to Brooklyn to meet the innovators behind a bike-powered food scrap pickup service. There's something special about compost about the way it brings people together. I have never heard anyone say that before in my life. We explore the deep connection between food waste and our climate future. Plus, America's children are playing catch-up in the classroom, struggling to make up for lost time. It's not going to be this year and we're all caught up. It's not going to be three years maybe and we're all caught up. What's being done to help our kids make the grade? And swipe left, swipe right, scroll down, repeat. I would rather stay home with my puppy and watch Netflix. Is dating app fatigue getting you down? I just want God to send me a man through Amazon. <laughs> How dating apps are affecting your brain as you search for the perfect match online. Welcome to season eight of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. America is trashy. No, not in a celebrity, tabloidy kind of way. I'm talking about literal trash. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, the average American produces close to five pounds of waste each day. About one pound of that is food waste. New Yorkers produce 24 million pounds of garbage every day. That waste is shipped off to be buried or burned as far away as South Carolina or Ohio. Some young people want to change that. As part of our partnership with Salesforce.org, we talked to young innovators about how they're combating the impact of climate change on vulnerable communities. I am a micro hauler. I ride my bike and pick up food scraps and put them in the trailers. My route on a, on a heavy day, it'll be like 200 pounds of food scraps. In about two hours, 19-year-old Bree Peralta will make 25 stops at homes, apartments, and businesses across the Bushwick neighborhood of Brooklyn. His job? Taking scraps like discarded fruits, vegetables, coffee grounds to be transformed into a nutrient-rich compost that's sold to local gardeners. How does composting relate to climate change? Like, connect those dots for me. Well, all the food that you don't divert from landfills, release greenhouse gases, and methane, and that all contributes to climate change. Clients pay a small fee for scraps to be brought to this small public garden in Brooklyn's Bushwick neighborhood, the home of BK Rot, an organization with 20 young people on payroll. They slop, chop, and mix the nitrogen-rich food scraps with carbon-heavy wood chips. The piles are turned over regularly, taking in oxygen to break down bacteria and fungi while speeding up decomposition. Finally, after eight weeks of this carefully planned dance of matter, compost is run through a solar-powered sifter before being packaged for sale. Every month, BK Rot will divert 15 to 20,000 pounds of food waste, but New York City produces almost 5 million tons of compostable waste every year. What do we want? Compost! What do we want it? Now! All right! Sandy Nurse co-founded BK Rot before getting elected to the New York City Council, where she chairs the Sanitation Committee. She's working to achieve a city goal of zero waste by 2030. To export our waste, we spend almost a half a billion dollars to send our waste to 
regional landfills or to burn it in Pennsylvania or in upstate New York. So the ability to, one, stop burning um, our trash and stop producing this methane has immense benefits for the climate crisis. Every day, the city has about 2,100 garbage trucks on New York City streets hauling the trash to massive transfer stations where it's compressed into huge containers, then shipped off by barge, truck, and train. Where does it all go? When we look at the location of incinerators, for example, most of incinerators in the country are located in low-income and communities of color. These are communities that are also hit first and worst with climate impacts like flooding, severe heat, and they become the bury and burn sites or the places that have to suffer those impacts. And so there's a real imbalance there, an inequality that has to be reckoned with. Here at BK Route, we like to talk about climate resilience. How do we come up with a solution for that problem that we didn't create? Dior St. Hilaire is a co-director of BK Rot. There's something special about compost about the way it brings people together. I have never heard anyone say that before in my life. There's something special about compost that brings people together. What's Absolutely. that? Absolutely. How so? You could come from a different socioeconomic status, a different cultural background, because you have a love of compost. BK Rot continues to grow and is expanding their solar capacity to meet energy needs without generating greenhouse gases. With more than $200,000 invested in wages, BK Rot sees its biggest potential for growth in neighborhood youth. Your system is going to have that. We know the problems that are facing us right now, and it, it is scary, but we don't have to stay scared. I love seeing like the, the change that's possible. And it just gets bigger and better and more people care and there's more support and there's just more possibilities. In the coming months, we'll visit more vulnerable communities impacted by climate change. You can watch our first piece on how the environment is making it harder for children to breathe in the South Bronx on matteroffact.tv. Next on Matter of Fact, Pandemic learning loss is real. It's about 6% of Michigan third graders who scored at least a year behind grade level on the third grade assessment. What's the best way to close the gap and help kids catch up? And later, looking for love. We are built to love. We are built to form a partnership. And the new way to do it is these dating sites. We explore the brain science that could change the way you use dating apps to find your match. You're watching Matter of Fact, America's number one nationally syndicated public affairs news magazine. It will likely take years before we really understand the impact of the pandemic on the next generation. Teachers are already seeing learning setbacks. A study by the National Center for Education Statistics shows reading scores had the largest drop in 30 years. The average score for nine-year-old students has fallen by five percentage points since 2022. Math scores decreased for the first time in the history of testing, down by seven percentage points for nine-year-old students. So what can parents, schools, and communities do to help their students get back on track? Catherine Strunk is a professor and the director of the Education Policy Innovation Collaborative at Michigan State University. 
Catherine Strunk, so nice to have you join us. So let's look specifically at the state of Michigan. We know that there are 5,600 third graders who, from their reading and math scores, did so poorly that in fact they're eligible to repeat third grade. That seems pretty shocking to me. What was your reaction to that data? No, I think it's alarming. So it's about 6% of Michigan third graders who scored at least a year behind grade level on the third grade assessment at the end of the year. That's up from about 4% in 2019 prior to the pandemic. So then who's in that group of 5,600? One in four students in the state's lowest performing schools, their turnaround schools, are scoring at that low level in reading proficiency in ELA in third grade. Um, one, about four and a half times the proportion of African-American students as white students, four and a half times the number of low-income students as their wealthier peers. So we're seeing that the students who are already struggling and already were sort of disenfranchised from the system prior to the pandemic, they have been hit the hardest. So how do parents decide if their kid should stay back? The retention literature is pretty conclusive that while we may see short-term gains from retention in the kind of third, fourth, fifth grade years, those gains die out over time. And in fact, we see pretty bad outcomes for kids who are retained in the long run, higher dropout rates, lower engagement with the education system over time. So as a parent, I would think about how we could really focus our instruction on helping to accelerate our students' learning. And I would hope that the student would not be retained in third grade. There's some information, some data that shows that it's going to take many, many months before you're able to close that gap. It's not going to be a, a very quick fix. It's not going to be this year and we're all caught up, caught up. It's not going to be three years maybe and we're all caught up. And schools are going to have to figure out how do they get additional resources to continue providing more teachers, more assistants, more paraprofessionals, more social workers, everything to help these students accelerate their learning over the next many years. You're saying invest, invest, invest to help close this gap. Where do you see that money coming from? And the federal government did a huge investment in public education, and I hope that they'll understand that the schools need to be continued to be given this money in order to continue providing these services. In addition, we need to prepare more teachers. And for, to do that, we need to be able to recruit them into these districts that many teachers don't want to teach in. What's that relationship, uh, Catherine, between a student and how they do right now and, and how they could potentially fare as an adult? What we know is that the way that students do in third grade in school is actually very predictive of how they're going to do both later in their academic careers and then later in life. So employment opportunities, income generation, things like that. So we really want to get it right in early elementary school. Catherine Strunk, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Coming up on Matter of Fact, you hear the dating app ding and you scroll. All of a sudden you'll think, ah, oh, you know, he likes cats and I like dogs. Won't work. Forget about it. How the science of the brain explains the dating choices you are about to make. And still ahead, the National Archives has a lot to keep track of. It's responsible for maintaining 13 billion pages of text and tens of millions of photographic images. How presidential papers became a big part of their record-keeping responsibility. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Swipe left, swipe right, scrolling profiles, hoping for a match. The world of dating has changed a lot. More and more singles are meeting online and using apps to try to find their partner. According to an annual Match.com study, 40% of people met their most recent first date online. 
25% met through a friend or family member, and fewer than 10% met randomly. The pressure to find a connection has many people quitting the apps altogether, or at least temporarily. Researchers call it dating app fatigue, and they say that 80% of singles in the match survey have experienced it. Fatigue is not just affecting their love lives, but also their brains. Our correspondent, Laura Chavez, talked to a researcher who's trying to figure out how to treat dating app fatigue. This is my journal, um, and this is where I write down what I expect from my husband. Kiera Hughes is a successful 39-year-old single woman who runs a learning center for children and is very close to having everything she wants. I have an amazing family. Um, I have great friends. I am an entrepreneur, and that's new and exciting. Is there anything missing from your life? Yes, a husband. I would love a husband. Kiera isn't alone in trying to find a partner. According to the most recent U.S. Census, a little under 50% of adults in America are single or unmarried. I've been dating for about two decades. Where and how are you meeting people? I've been set up by my friends and family members. I've even been set up by people in the grocery store. You mentioned that you've been on dating apps. I've tried POF or Plenty of Fish. I've tried Tinder. I've tried Facebook Dated. I've tried Bumble and Hinge, Match.com. Oh my goodness, there's so many. <laughs> How would you say you feel about dating at this moment? Some days um, I feel hopeful about dating. Um, some days I, I don't want to do it. <laughs> I would rather stay home with my puppy and watch Netflix. That kind of dating fatigue, which is mostly related to dating apps, inspired Maryland psychotherapist Nora Pattison to start a modern dating support group for singles like Kiera. Hi, I'm Kiera. Hi, I'm Nora. Nice to meet you. It's yeah. nice to meet you. While Kiera isn't a client of Nora's. Do you have other friends who are single or are they mostly partners? She agreed to sit down and talk. We talk about setting and respecting boundaries, attachment style and understanding your attachment style as well as the people you're dating. And then we also talk about navigating burnout and rejection as well. Wanting to meet someone, wanting a relationship, you have no idea what the other people logging into those apps are expecting. How'd it go? It was amazing. Yeah. Getting a better understanding of relationship expectations helps, but it doesn't always offset dating fatigue. It does get overwhelming when you get in so many messages on this app and your phone is constantly dinging, dinging, dinging. Um, that can feel very overstimulating. Neuroscience explains why Kiera and so many others feel overwhelmed. And this little brain region, the ventral tegmental area, VTA, makes dopamine a natural stimulant. This is Dr. Helen Fisher, a biological anthropologist and chief science advisor to Match.com. She studied how people find and fall in love for over two decades and has data on why online dating might feel debilitating. We know from studying the brain that uh, we can absorb about uh, five to nine options. And after about nine options, the brain gets overloaded. It's called the paradox of choice uh, or cognitive overload. And this cognitive overload applies to everyone. It's a basic brain system. It doesn't matter what color you are, uh, where you came from, uh, what you do for a living, or whether you're gay, straight, trans, bi, whatever it is. It's exactly the same. Which brings us back to Kiera and her search for Mr. Right. Why am I still single? Um, and I've even asked myself that a, a lot. Um, 
and it becomes worrisome. And the question is, I don't know. I don't know why I'm single. What do you see for your future dating life? If I was to have one wish in the future, I just want God to send me a man through Amazon. <laughs> just bring him to my door and say, this is the one. In Baltimore, I'm Laura Chavez for Matter of Fact. If you want to learn more about how your brain reacts to dating choices, go to matteroffact.tv. Ahead on Matter of Fact. What do the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Edison's light bulb patent, and Apollo 11's flight plan all have in common? We'll show you when we come back. What do the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Edison's light bulb patent, and Apollo 11's flight plan all have in common? They're just some of the historic documents preserved by America's record keeper, the National Archives and Records Administration. Now, lately, there's been a focus on the National Archives for its role in preserving presidential records. Since the end of the Trump administration, the archives has been working to retrieve missing records. In January, 15 boxes of records were returned by the former president, including 150 documents marked as classified. The Justice Department then authorized a search of Mar-a-Lago. In August, agents retrieved an additional 26 boxes of material, including information on the nuclear defense capabilities of other nations. So why is this a big deal? Well, in 1978, following the Watergate scandal, Congress passed a law called the Presidential Records Act, and it requires all written or electronic communications, even a president's handwritten notes, to be surrendered to the archives at the end of an administration. It's kind of like handing over the keys to your home once you move out. The archives also oversees 13 presidential libraries and 14 regional archives across the country. Next on Matter of Fact, our viewfinder focuses on the wind turbines changing the energy landscape of the Lone Star State. Today, our viewfinder segment showing us evidence sustainable energy projects are gaining a foothold thanks to the Houston Chronicle's contributing reporter, Ronnie Crocker, and photographer, Yi-Chin Lee. We've got an extraordinary look at what they call hulks on the horizon. The 200-ton towers are imposing giants on the prairie land of central Texas. Each turbine stands nearly 100 yards tall. These are owned by Engie, a French company with U.S. headquarters in Houston. The towers are built on leased land, with farmers getting a yearly payment for 30 years, plus a share of the profits. Not all residents are fans. They have concerns about noise, impact on farm animals, and potential damage to roads and infrastructure. Each blade is 220 feet long, weighs 40,000 pounds. And it might not look like it, but those blades can whip around at over 180 miles an hour. Interestingly, Texas leads the nation when it comes to renewable energy production. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI, Pluto, and YouTube.